Hello, and thank you for joining Terry's Research on our inaugural podcast, looking at the outlook for 2016. My name is Jim McGregor, Principal Analyst at Terry's Research, and I'm joined today by our other two Principal Analysts, Kevin Crewell and Paul Teich. Once again, we're going to be talking about the outlook for 2016, and we're seeing a lot of changes going on throughout the market. Um, 2016 is probably going to be a bit of a struggle as we look forward. The PC market's still declining. We're seeing a lot of price pressure as many markets mature and growth comes from emerging markets. The IoT segment that everyone's really banking on going forward is really developing kind of slow. Uh, and many of the applications there are really kind of lower ASPs, especially from a semiconductor perspective. And we're also seeing a bit of a merger hangover from 2015. We think we'll still see a lot of mergers going on throughout the electronics ecosystem in 2017. And 2016 and 2017. However, we don't think we're going to see the mega mergers we saw from 2015, the big ones, especially from semiconductors like Intel and Altera, Avago and Broadcom, and NXP and Freescale. And there's a lot of other changes that are really embedded in the technology and the ecosystem that are changing going forward. One of those big changes, and this is Kevin Creole is the changes in Moore's Law. It's become one of the uh, big challenges in the industry as it's uh, the manufacturing costs have been going up and each new process node requires more complex processes which is driving up the cost per wafer. There's also issues dealing with the higher power densities as transistors shrink but the power for those transistors don't shrink in the same manner. This is resulting in a more esoteric cooling tech solutions, including the return of water cooling to the data center. In addition, we are shifting from thinking about processor strengths to uh, from millimeter squared a problem to now it's a 3D solution. Packaging innovation, especially multi-chip packaging, is critical in both IoT, high bandwidth memories and servers and other applications. The positive aspect of this is that we no longer have to view the chip as a monolithic solution, but eventually there'll be very cost-effective ways to mix different processes into one package for customer needs. And that leads us to the data center. Yeah, hi, this is Paul Teich. In the data center, I'll say there's an elephant in the room, and in this case, everyone knows it's there. It's Intel. Intel's share of server processor unit shipments is not an absolute 100%, but it is above 95%. What that means for Intel is that to grow their data center group, their DCG business, faster than native market growth, they have to grab other parts of the ecosystem where they have much lower market share, like storage and networking systems. At the same time, Intel is looking to adjacent data center markets. Network architecture and technology are becoming much more important. A lot of that's due to the Moore's Law limitations that Kevin talked about. Data center operators have noticed that their network is consuming a lot of power just to move data around. It's not doing any useful compute. Their current network equipment is too expensive to purchase, expensive to operate, and they're looking for open network software alternatives to run on less expensive white box software-defined networking hardware, SDN. What this dynamic is doing is driving strong interest in Mellanox as a supplier of networking chips that is not tied to specific processor architectures. Mellanox is a founding member of OpenPower. They're working closely with Qualcomm's ARM server development and other ARM licensees. And they also do great business with nearly ubiquitous Intel-based designs. 
Plus, Mellanox is interested in doing useful compute in the network because they don't own the compute resource that belongs mostly to Intel. At the same time, there's an explosion of interest in advanced analytics, particularly in machine learning and deep learning artificial intelligence algorithms, AI. The challenge with these new classes of analytic algorithms is that they don't run particularly fast on traditional Xeon-style processors. Researchers who are pushing AI and machine learning state-of-the-art have been leading on much simpler but massively parallel capabilities of graphics processing units, GPUs, particularly from NVIDIA, and also on Z Intel's Xeon Phi accelerators. In some cases, this buys orders of magnitude more analytics performance and certainly much better performance per watt, but even that's not enough. The challenge for these advanced analytics algorithms is, is that they're in their infancy and they're still rapidly evolving. This is why everyone's interested in field programmable gate arrays, FPGAs. FPGAs are the middle ground between software running on mass-produced chips and going through several years of custom, full custom uh, logic design to create a highly optimized chip for the algorithm. That works when there's standards, but because it's rapidly evolving, there aren't any yet. So given how fast these algorithms are evolving, no one wants to devote long development cycles to hardware that will be obsolete before it's finished. So we think this, this ability of FPGAs to somewhat optimize hardware for specific algorithms, which runs much faster than standard chip designs, is a big part of the reason that Intel acquired Altera. And what that did was drive pretty much everyone else in the server and data center architecture market to talk with Xilinx. We've seen Xilinx pretty much everywhere that Mellanox is popping up. They're also a platinum member of Open Power. They're working with Qualcomm server folks, etc. And even Mellanox has a Xilinx FPGA accelerated NIC, and basically to offload net network functions from the from the processor, which takes us back to doing processing in the network, as long as there's data there and we're burning power there. So what else is driving server architecture? Who else is doing that on the processor front? 2016 is a pivotal year for ARM and open power servers to start carving out some share against Intel. It's do or die. We're anticipating that more ARM server vendors will start shipping in 2016. 2015 was too quiet of a year for the embryonic ARM server ecosystem, so we expect to see more from ARM and its server licensees in 2016. Execution will be key for the ARM server ecosystem in 2016. IBM and other Open Power Foundation members have been investing in creating Power 8 infrastructure ahead of the first non-IBM Open Power chips, but that is not enough to sustain their ecosystem. Suzhou Power Core said last spring that open, at the Open Power Summit that they would sample their CP1 processor by the end of the, this year, and apparently they are shipping processors to China's Zoom Netcom, who's using CP1 in their red power servers, but that's deep inside the Chinese market. These products have not yet been seen outside of China. So if open power is to succeed in long term, we'll need to see additional non-IBM open power silicon entering the market in 2016. And because we mentioned China, that, that brings us to the web giants. Diane Bryant, head of Intel DCG, speaks of the Super 7 cloud vendors, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, who are building all or some of their own equipment and certainly ordering semi-custom Xeon server processors from Intel on an early ship program, which is six months before Intel releases the products to other customers. 
So Intel defines the breakpoint at this kind of purchasing power at 10,000 servers per year. At that point, customers expect to buy customized hardware that's optimized for their software and workloads. The Super 7 and high end of this scale do not only demand customization. In many cases, they're designing their own servers, network switches, and storage capacity. So the challenge for traditional server OEMs like HP, Dell, Huawei, Lenovo, which is IBM's old x86 business, Cisco, etc., is that have to charge customers prices that fund those OEMs' own research and development. Plus, their business models are built around all of their enterprise customers buying the same basic boxes with the option to customize their choice of processor, amount of memory, internal storage, etc. But these are not architectural feature choices, nor are they the custom power distribution and bent metal choices to fit different cloud, cloud racks. The traditional server OEMs are losing momentum to OEMs in the, to ODMs in the cloud market, original design manufacturers, which is becoming a much larger slice of the overall data center business over time. So in 2015, we saw HP enter a joint product development agreement with Foxconn for HP's Cloudline brand. But in general, this new manufacturing dynamic favors Asian design center competitors, their data center competitors. Huawei is maybe the exception to this OEM general trend in that Huawei has not participated much in the North American server market due to their networking gear being blacklisted by the US government years ago. However, Huawei is pushing into North America with server and storage gear, and that should provide them with some upside. On the ODM front, Inspur and Quanta, plus US-based Stack Velocity and Hive, are leveraging Intel's rack-scale architecture and cloud customers' customization requests to level the playing field against HP, Dell, Lenovo, and Huawei. In addition, Long-time Intel-based ODMs, Inspur, Tyan, Wistron, and ZTE are all platinum and gold members of the Open Power Foundation. We, we believe that the server ODMs, semi-custom design capabilities, are going to make a lot of difference in the back half of this decade. Thanks, Paul. Um, topic we're going to talk about here is the PC market. Unfortunately, the PC market is not as healthy as the server market and we're seeing uh, despite the launch of Microsoft's Windows 10 which was uh, pretty critical in 2015 it did move some units uh, we do expect to see a single-digit decline in unit shipments in 2016 but there are some bright spots it's not all gloom and doom uh, one is productivity tablets uh, both Jim and I actually have bought Surface Pro 4s and uh, Paul's primary mode of uh, PCing is uh, a, a Surface Pro 3. So small form factor designs like the, the productivity tablets, small form factor PCs, we see as an opportunity for some growth in 2016. Uh, the other area that's going to drive uh, some P PC ASP growth is going to be in PC gaming, and specifically the move towards virtual reality in 2016. We expect that will drive some revenue growth, but a lot on the, VC, in the VR side depends on new content. Developers need to get on board, and we, we see some of that today, but we expect to see more of that in 2016. One area we see as an opportunity for the PC marketplace is the shipment of 4K panels. Paul actually is uh, upgraded to a version of 4K himself, uh, but uh, as that becomes more cost-effective and common in 2016, 
Uh, it's going to drive some, maybe some new PCs, but certainly it's great news for the GPU vendors like AMD and NVIDIA. More pixels need better GPUs to drive them. The growth of uh, VR in 2016 will also drive the need for more powerful GPUs in 2016. But overall, uh, both AMD, Intel, the PC manufacturers, all going to have to manage expectations in 2016 and try to drive for higher valued products uh, for, to, to drive higher revenue in an uh, environment with constrained unit shipments. So that brings us to the multi-million or billion or even trillion unit pot of gold if you are looking at some of the forecasts that are out there for IoT. So what's really going on with IoT? We're definitely entering the IoT era where we're connecting everything, we're creating new devices, and we're creating intelligence out of that eventually. But the real challenge here is where is that growth coming from? So far, the consumer markets really maintain relatively niche, you know, where we've had a few hits, a few misses, and everything else. The real growth is coming from where we expected, and that's the industrial IoT market. We're seeing a strong growth and uptick from applications like industrial automation, agriculture, smart cities, medical, and with the integration of robotics and deep learning, you know, these are really forming some very critical applications for these industrial, uh, industrial markets and applications. The big thing in 2016, though, is not just going to be the growth of these industrial markets, but also security. Security is kind of taking the headlines in the, in the, or kind of taking a back seat to the potential of IoT. Well, throughout the past 18 months, security has become a big issue within the industry, and now it's going to start taking the headlines. We think we're going to start seeing a lot more focus on security. Uh, ARM recently introduced the uh, ARM V8M architecture that's going to introduce security into microcontrollers. We're starting to see others look at uh, security inline processors. So basically, we're going to start seeing security solutions that range from silicon through software. And that's going to be the big headliner for 2016. The other part of it, uh, you know, so what happens with consumers? You know, that's still going to be a very fragmented market where there's going to be a lot of hits and miss. Where everyone's really looking right now, though, is wearables. So what do we see in wearables, Paul? So, Jim, as you said, um, the industrial IoT solves a lot of concrete pain points today. By the way, concrete's an infrastructure joke. Um, consumer IoT, however, is driven by fads, and we've written about some of them. I think the big thing, though, is drones. Um, drones are a fad. We'll see where that goes as the U.S. Uh, Federal Aviation Administration requires their registration in, in 2016. The big one, I think, is wearables. Uh, again, fad. They're mostly still for hardcore fitness tracking. The Apple Watch is the epitome of the fad at this moment simply because it's so slick. But we think that its novelty will flatten out if new applications and user experiences aren't developed soon. I mean, it, it's talk, cool talking to my wrist. It's kind of a 1930s Dick Tracy thing. But we have smartphones and wireless in-ear speakers with embedded microphones now. Why do we need stuff strapped to our wrists again? I, I thought we got away from that when we got our smartphones. So now I'm at the point where I have a smartphone shrunk to the form factor of a fashion watch that gives me at least a full day of battery-powered operation. 
including wireless earpieces, a full heads-up AR display on my glasses or contacts, voice and gesture control, all of that stuff. That's great. But that also means I don't have to pocket a large, large screen smartphone anymore. As long as I have to carry a smartphone-sized battery to power a compute platform with me, uh, i got to put it in my pocket. Smartphones are going to rule if I have to carry that big battery. So changing that's not going to happen in 2016, probably not 2017 either. So we believe the crossover between industrial and consumer IoT in the wearable market is the quantified health movement initiative. There's a variety of, of things happening in that space. It can be a big driver for wearables, but there are many substantial challenges for it. So on the device side, there needs to be data homogenization and certified standards for measurement of performance. For instance, what's a step? Are all of my devices that are certified to operate measuring my activity in the same way and measuring it accurately? So how reliably is my pulse measured via what kind of sensor and how reliable is that? How do we, find, how do we define sleep across devices and services? Right now, that seems to be like a wild west. Nobody knows how to do that, what it means, how it impacts health. And once we are gathering all of that data and it's actually making sense to our healthcare providers, we need the end-to-end -end security and privacy methods in place to conform with medical information standards. Quantified health initiatives need support from insurance companies and hospital systems, and that's very likely not going to happen before 2017. But there is hope on the horizon for AR and VR. Kevin? Yes, talking about fads, uh, you can't not talk about the fad nature of augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, and it was the hype cycle in 2016 was, uh, or I should say 2015, was in full force. But there's a lot of great developments going on there. Uh, it's actually an area I'm extremely enthusiastic about both augmented and virtual realities have an uh, interesting place in the market. In 2015 we saw a lot of early um, products, uh, the Google Cardboard, the Samsung Gear VR, uh, these are sort of like gateway drugs into the more serious VR that we expect to be delivered in 2016. Uh, those are the HTC Vive, the Sony Morpheus, and the Oculus Rift. Those products all go on sale in 2016. And we expect this is going to drive the content providers to really uh, bring some unique and and also probably some not too unique VR content in 2016. Content is super critical to this uh, market because uh, without unique content uh, you can do most of what you do in VR with just uh, 2D display. So it has to be something that really brings you in on the virtual reality side and works well. There's been issues also with in virtual reality with sickness, people getting sick from uh, wearing virtual reality uh, headsets for too long and uh, a lot of work is being done to solve that problem and we expect that 2016 will be a, a proof point that they've got there. In addition to virtual reality, augmented reality is also taking uh, a slightly different path in 2015 and 2016. Both came out of the same developments in the 1960s, but 
of this different path has to do with the technology required for each. With virtual reality, there are displays that cover each eye uh, that are mostly the result of sensors and displays that came out of the smartphone business. Augmented reality requires some unique optical features in order to overlay the augmented image over the real-world view of, uh, that you have. Uh, we see some of that in the Microsoft HoloLens, which goes on sale in 2016. And then there's also the very secretive startup called Magic Leap, which has, it claims, a breakthrough uh, product in augmented reality. But in order to uh, facilitate both, uh, we also expect there's some other key technologies that we're going to be following in 2016. That includes hand controllers, eye tracking, um, hand, arm, and body tracking, and the ability to blend the camera video into the VR headset environment to create an augmented uh, reality mashup. And this also leads me to general discussion of video gaming. Uh, it continues to be a very strong market. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's one of the bright spots in the PC market. Uh, there is new content, and then, uh, there's also the eSports, uh, which is driving a lot of uh, shipments and recognition in the wider market. Uh, there are millions of people who are viewing esports through uh, online means. And uh, this is becoming a more of a professional sport every day. Console shipments probably have peaked, but there is a lot of price cutting going on for this holiday season. 4K displays becoming more pervasive is also going to help drive ASP increases for gaming PCs and for greater GPU shipments as well. And um, with that, we kind of wrap up uh, most of our main topics. Well, it sounds like we're, just to summarize everything, we're in kind of a predicament for 2016. we got a few strong pots, uh, spots. We have a few growth opportunities going forward in the long term. But overall, you know, the market's still going to struggle a little bit in 2016. So, guys, that's a pretty good summary, but... Let's put on your – let's look into your crystal ball now. Look in there and give me your wildest predictions for 2016. What do you think is really going to happen, Kevin? Well, actually, the, uh, the biggest problem uh, we have as analysts is that we finally reached the point where there are more conferences showing up every day, and they're going to exceed the number of people who can actually attend them. Um, it, it's been uh, – Fun that all these conferences keep coming out, but there's there's just too many of them, uh, especially in IoT and in VR. Uh, we can't possibly, and, and I expect that even people involved in these industries can't possibly attend all of them. I'll second that. And what about you, Paul? What do you think is going to happen in 2016? Well, if if you read the uh, popular press, uh, we're going to get robot overlords soon. And so I'm going to put my neck on the line and say no. Skynet's definitely not going to become self-aware in 2016. Not that we have any real understanding of what self-aware actually means. So Skynet and other perceived AI threats are based on an assumption that we can design a hardware and software system that can make a strategic decision on its own volition, that it can want to do new and novel things on its own. And we just don't know how to do that yet. 
A much closer threat is that human-controlled systems are becoming very good at tactical decision-making. They know stuff about things, and they're starting to have the learning ability to make sense of patterns in data. And that allows them to move around the world like many kinds of animals. That's another kind of marketing issue. I think comparing these systems to humans is a, is a marketing ploy, especially when you consider that our human senses and reaction times are really not as good as many animals that don't have our intellect. Eagles see better, dogs smell better, both of them move faster than we do and they have better reflexes and so on. So the systems we'll build in 2016 just won't have anything that approaches, approaches human intellect or wisdom. Uh, but they'll have pretty good vision systems and you can already ask them where to find the closest open Starbucks. That part's already doable. Back to you, Jim. So we still have Siri, Cortana, and thank you, Google. Hello, Google in 2016, but no Terminator. Darn. I was really banking on that one. Oh, well. Hey, I want to thank everyone for joining us on our first podcast and look for additional podcasts from Tirius Research. If you want any more information about Tirius or contact with any of our analysts, please go to our website or you can contact us through customer service at TiriusResearch.com. Thank you very much and happy holidays. <laughs>